Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. If there's one thing I should really emphasize, I think that the poor leader hesitates and makes no decisions. I always say to people, I think I've had a good day if I've made 100 decisions and 51 of them or more are right. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Dave Dalton. Dave's the CEO of British Glass, the UK glass industry's representative body. Dave's a research chemist by discipline, having started his career in the analytical laboratories at the Glass Research Centre. He's a passionate advocate of glass as the material at the very centre of our future circular economy, and he strives to improve the general understanding of glass as a material to meet many of society's future needs. Dave joins us today to share his insight as a leader and a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Dave. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to speaking with you and hearing your story. So can you tell us a little bit about British Glass then, please? Yeah, we're we're a bit of a strange organisation, actually. We originally, the organisation I joined was a a research institute. So Mm -hmm. back in the early 1980s, uh, long before time began, I I was a a research chemist uh, and I worked for an agency that the government had set up just after the, the war to bring the various technologies up to speed to be able to compete globally. So we researched glass. Um, mm-hmm. So my background is um, as a, a laboratory base and then ultimately a, a technical lead in glass research for about 30 years of my career. Mm-hmm. But our organisations merged, or our organisation rather, merged with uh, another element that represented the glass industry, which was the trade body mm-hmm. back in 1988. Um, I remained as sort of technical lead for considerable time. But then the what was then called the grandest title of Director General was uh, gently coaxed out of role. Uh, and I was asked to stand across both parts of the organisation whilst they made their mind up and somehow it stuck. So I became the chief executive of an organisation which is, for the most part, the representative body for UK glass manufacturers. So that's a, bit of a sort of politician role. I spend a lot of time, or I did before covid Basically, um, in London or Brussels or Paris or whatever, representing glass and the ability for manufacturers to make glass. The other side of the of the job is still to look after the research wing. We're an organisation of maybe sixty people, and I guess 35, 40 of them work in the in the technical department, still researching glass and doing testing around glass. So we're a bit of a chimera of an organisation: a technical mm-hmm. wing and a political wing, and I sort of span the two. Yeah, must keep it interesting, I'm sure. Yeah, never a dull day. Yeah. And, and so can you talk to us about the kind of challenges that you're up against then? So as a leader of that organisation, in, in that stage of its life cycle, what kind of challenges are you up against as a leader? Uh, it's it's multifold. I mean, obviously we're an externally facing organisation in, in the most part in that we're representing those that manufactured last and we're helping in the technologies that provide for their future requirements. And to that end, I mean, we're, we're leading on things like decarbonisation. Obviously, right. uh, an industry like glass manufacturer has significant carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And um, since the, the dawn of, of this millennium, all heavy industry has really been in the spotlight in terms of its carbon emissions. Yeah. Uh, the industry I joined was responsible for about 3 million tonnes per annum in the UK alone of, of carbon. Fortunately, over the past 20 or 30 years, we've halved that, but we're still on a journey mm-hmm. towards net zero. Um, so that, that's a, a big part of, of, of what we're doing. 
Um, but obviously, at the moment, the energy crisis and everything mm-hmm. that's been triggered by what's going on between Russia and, and Ukraine. So, we're uh, I'm representing a, an industry that is a, a considerable consumer of fuel. And mm-hmm. daily now, I, I'm I'm literally on the phone to senior civil servants and uh, and more senior politicians, ministers, to put the plight of our industry, the fact that. Gas price rises, for instance, uh, have moved from around 50p a therm to typically £2.50 a therm, but on the spot market as much as £8. If you've got an invested proportion of your product price as maybe 20-25% energy, if it goes Mm -hmm. up five times, there's no margin and you can't pay your wages. So, yeah, I'm really under the cosh at the moment and, and that's almost occupying... 24-7, it's just on and on and relentless. But it it is about survival. Yeah. I guess internally and across the industry, in in your role, you must be sort of supporting the organisations that work alongside you as well as having those internal challenges. Uh, Well, uh, I I talk about the external elements. I mean, Mm -hmm. fundamentally, I see my role much more embedded in making this organisation fit for purpose. I've I've spent most of my career, I I turned the milestone of 60 at at Christmas, so I'm looking for succession. I'm I'm trying to leave not a a legacy for for any benefit to me, but I think an improved organisation that can actually service the industry that that subscribes to it, Mm -hmm. can develop the research and and technology to put glass truly on this platform where I've always hoped it would would land. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is about being a a carbon-free mass producer of materials that are beneficial to society, um, plays its role in a circular economy, provides Mm -hmm. for automotive, for aesthetically pleasing buildings and all the sort of containers plus everything that goes into uh, specialist glass, like wind farms and solar panels and things that benefit society. It's really one of these sort of untold heroes. And it's my job to make sure that within the business, people have that passion for it and that that they've grown and developed and it's coordinated in such a way. It's really about leadership. uh, And, you know, you need to pass on that cudgel so that there are leaders and burgeoning leaders at all levels, so the organisation remains healthy, not stale. Yes. Yeah. That, that's sort of major challenges I see. That, of course, one eye is always on the customer, the external facing, that, that's what we're here to serve. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, we need a capable staff base who are good at what they do, or yeah. developed properly, or given the opportunities and supported in that. So a lot of it is internal focus, getting the, the communication, getting the staffing right, getting the um, the, the HR environment, right? Mm-hmm. People are happy to work here. You have a good staff retention. and We're doing a lot on, on the issues that we've seen, particularly across COVID, where it's been a, a, a bit of a, a new awakening to technologies that were already in place. We all had Zoom meetings from time to mm-hmm. time, but it became the norm. And I think post-COVID, it's going to be a major part of how we operate. As I said to you, I I previously spent a lot of time in Brussels or Paris or London. I can far more effectively do a lot of those meetings just online and Mm -hmm. and save an awful lot more time. Yeah, and carbon. (laughs) uh, And carbon, indeed. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting process, both Mm -hmm. internally and externally at, at the moment. 
yeah absolutely and and so you mentioned that the organization is sort of split between research and and ops i guess i suppose you could look at your career in that way if you said you started in the research <laughs> arena and then you moved into a leadership role yes uh, absolutely and, and and not sort of volunteering to I, I think leadership is a strange thing and, and just a sort of a slight aside, I, I joined a, a group a few years ago, which is unfortunately um, disbanded through its very makeup, but we employed some consultants, uh, an agency to help us with the internal dynamics of the organisation. And it was really about looking for future leaders and making sure that our internal structure was appropriate to the needs so people were happy in the roles and we developed them. Uh, and through that process, uh, they used to run a, a dining club periodically, maybe every quarter, mm -hmm. under the title of Leadership Matters. And it was really interesting to, to be able to meet with people from other businesses, from all sectors, third sector and out-and-out um, -out salespeople, you know, right across the spectrum, and compare notes and look at the, the real issues behind developing leadership and what it meant. It's not something, as I say, a journey that I embarked upon meaningfully. I, I started out with ambition in the role that I took on. I was a, a, originally a lab technician, then a research scientist, and then a research mm -hmm. lead technical director. Through all of that, my, my ambition was I was working with a material that fascinated me. Mm -hmm. I saw its opportunity in society and really wanted to sing the praises of it. So it was really getting it out there. So at, at a level, I guess I, I had a a political opportunity or a quasi-political opportunity from very, very early days of leading research to try and plead with government and decision makers about investment in materials technology. So I was trying to champion glass as a non-politician, unbeknown to me, honing certain skills in yeah. dealing with people in different environments. So I guess it was an evolution through that. Um, and I did spend time in, in Whitehall and Westminster in my technical days, but talking to a, a certain selection of society, a certain sort of breed of um, civil servant more than politician, mm -hmm. looking at the, the needs of our industry and our sector and our own business and, and trying to get funding and, and approval of developing technologies that we could try and get out there in the marketplace and help our industry and help society. And I think through that process, um, it sort of opened my eyes to communicating on a, on a broader spectrum, mm -hmm. having a, a wider audience, and I guess learning my craft through the idea of communicating with different sectors of society and different knowledge bases to being able to or having to be able to speak at different levels from the completely um, almost naive level of uh, no knowledge at all mm -hmm. right through to highly technical dealing with university professors uh, and finding that balance where you were learning that craft to convey to other people. And I think that is part of the leadership, sort of burgeoning element of leadership, where once you discover that people are looking to you for that leadership, mm -hmm. you have to hone your skills in, in the way that you convey that, and take people on board. And it's a lot of these old adages about communications, a two-way thing, and it really is. You can't dictate. You can't just tell people something and expect that they know it. And you can't even just sort of 
pose questions and get a, a notional answer that's in the right spectrum and therefore assume that everything's known. It's an yeah. ongoing built dialogue. And I think through that, you get to know people. Mm-hmm. And those people, you can determine from that who are potential successors in certain roles, who are happy in their own roles and just want supporting in, in what they want to achieve. Yeah. But you can test the boundaries. And I think leadership is its a whole collective of facets. And I, I go back to, to that, um, that dining club that, that looked at the, the sort of ethos of, of leadership. Uh, and one evening, we, we debated long and hard about the definition of leadership. And I think we came up with something that I still use today and find a, a, a really sort of reassuring definition. And it is leadership is the ability to create followership. And I think that just is so succinct. And what it says is if you're on a journey, you want people not to be dictated to follow your journey, but to say, that's good. I like that. Mm-hmm. I want to go along as well. And it's also recognising the the foibles of of, of leadership. I think one of the mistakes that many leaders make is that they don't understand the impact of the triviality of things that they do without meaning. Mm -hmm. Little statements, little snippets of things that are said, not even with any meaning, are overinterpreted by by individuals within organisations who will go home and lose sleep over it. I think you've got to be so careful about how you embrace the relationships that you build and you take people on that journey with you and you reassure them that if they have interpreted something, they ought to feel comfortable to come to you and ask, did you mean this? I've been fretting over this. You know, can you explain? And I think that's one of the things that we're really working hard in this organisation to resolve because communication is is a minefield. There isn't an organisation there that has a a panacea that can just do this perfectly. We hear lots of stories about um, certain companies that that are very good at it, but you also find in those companies they have the resource, they have the wherewithal to communicate to the outside world that they're doing that really well. Individuals in those organisations don't necessarily see it the same way. Mm -hmm. I think it's the holy grail in any organisation to really get on top of effectively communicating right across the staff base, engaging them, making them feel challenged but happy in that challenge Mm -hmm. and really worthwhile in, in their role, appreciated, supported, and it's one of the things we, we, we do really quite rigorously. We try to look at people's ambitions and try to look at what might inhibit those ambitions okay. and, and get beyond that and take them on the journey that they ought to go on. Even if sometimes they're convinced by previous experience that it's a step too far, at least to challenge them to look, yeah. not to push them too hard beyond where they're comfortable, but at least take them to the point where they can evaluate for themselves. Yeah, empowering them. Forward. Yeah, empowering them so they can see the potential. Absolutely. And sometimes that's what you need, isn't it? Sometimes you need someone to see it in you before you can see it in yourself. Yeah. 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 And and so my question, usually my next question is, how did your tell us about your leadership um, career? So how did that develop? But it sounds as though it was quite organic rather than intentional. Absolutely organic. I said my predecessor was. Um, director general, awfully grandiose title. Um, I, I took on the role technical director. Director's a strange title as well. It, it's it's something that can have many connotations. I think we try to use it in the basis of a responsibility 
rather than just a, uh, a sort of flashy title. And I spent many years being a, a notional director without the title, completely happy with that. I was general manager. That's another strange term that can have many, many connotations. Never really thought to have the title. I think you just acquire responsibility. Uh, and as you do, it really depends on how you're wired and how you're configured to how you respond to that. My wife always says, I, I'm, I'm too poor at saying no. But I, I think the, the issue for me is once I get compelled to do something, I'm not a great com complete finisher. Uh, and, I, and one thing I, I do recognise is the, the, the foibles in my own makeup. So what I try to do and what I try to encourage other people to do is surround themselves with people of different skill sets. That mm -hmm. um, when my feet are miles off the ground and I'm, I'm in the clouds imagining things, there's someone to pull them down and say, it's one step at a time, let, let, you know, we, we might want to achieve that, but it's not tomorrow. And, and people that can then distill that and communicate it to others in a certain way that helps them understand it. So it, it's about the whole process. Uh, and as you say, it, it's it's acquired over a significant period of time. And, and I've seen other leaders in, in industries that, that I've worked in and around of all denominations that from, from absolutely dictatorial, the ones that have frightened staff. Mm -hmm. And they can be effective, don't get me wrong, but but it's it's not a pleasant environment. It's not something I think today's world would, would gladly embrace. It, it's, it's an old school, frowned upon, very sort of bigoted way of doing things. Um, but in certain elements of, of business, that can be a, a relatively successful way of doing things. Um, it tends to get ultimately... Um, seen through and, 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 mm -hmm. and corrected, but uh, it's still out there. And it's something that we see occasionally individuals that rise in this organisation, they get a little bit ahead of themselves and think, I've got a new title, a new power base, and it's exercised inappropriately. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do here and what, what, what I've always tried to do is, is measure that and you know, down to the previous statement about impact on others you you've got to have checks and balances and measures and you've got to be sure if you are in a leadership role you carry massive responsibility and you should never take that lightly i don't think <clears throat> there are natural leaders or a natural born leader there's no doubt that have that persona uh, but i think a lot of them tend to be quite scary people okay. they, they can be successful in life uh, and they can take certain people of a similar ilk on the journey with them. But I think they tend to be massively disruptive, um, not always a bad thing, but it means that their journey tends to be fragmented. They'll do something, they'll get a, a business from a certain place to a better place maybe, but they'll leave damage in it and move on and do that in another organisation and on they go and they can have a very successful career. Mm -hmm. I would hesitate to qualify that as appropriate leadership. Yes, yeah. Um, it, uh, who am I to comment? But from a personal perspective, mm -hmm. I find much more satisfaction in, in embarking upon a journey, enlightening others to the purpose of that journey and trying to, to convince them through their own observations that it's a sensible journey for them to embark upon as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's been the ethos. So you're right. I mean, my journey has not been, I, I, I've always enjoyed the journey. And I, I say that to people a, a lot. 
many people write their career path and, and have this sort of goal, this aspiration. And I, I don't knock that at all. I think very ambitious people who want the highest lifestyles very often do that. and They're, they're very driven. I'm, I'm more driven on, on a personal level. I get much more satisfaction from seeing someone else develop and blossom and, and be happy in what they do. It, it's like Christmas. I, I'd far rather give presents than receive them. I hate receiving presents. <laughs> I, I love other people being joyful of, of what they've received. Now, I, it's a similar sort of ethos in, in my working life. I, I like to develop people to their potential. And the only way I can see and, and I'm able to do that is with a, a different style of engagement, um, which is much more personal. It's uh, the CEO's door is always open. Doesn't matter whether you're the cleaner. The cleaner comes in every morning. I'm I'm first in to open the building. The cleaner's always chatting in my office. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right through to the Secretary of State. It doesn't matter. The, the, the conversation's the same. Um, I, I, I take as you find. Mm-hmm. Try to develop people in, in in the direction they want to go. So I guess absolutely. I've evolved into a, a role. Never sought it, but equally won't shirk what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's my dilemma at the moment. I, I need an exit strategy, <laughs> and it's difficult to let go when you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think just to your previous point, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on that leadership avatar. You know, what does a leader look like? It's it's still it previously was there isn't a yeah. single avatar for, for leadership. Uh, no, but. But I think there is still sort of, uh, there can be a perception that a leader has to be the loudest person in the room to get people to follow you. And I think that's the thing that was part of the reason why we started the human CEO, because, you know, like exactly like you say, there is no one, one size fits all, but there has previously been a perception of what a leader should be. And that's changing slowly. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and on that note, so do you think that there are characteristics that all great leaders should share or, or could share? Empathy. Yeah, okay. I think that's a much lacking quality in, in, in many traditional leaders. I think people think as leaders you need to be separated and austere. And I understand that and, and to a degree. In terms of social events, I, I, if we have orchestrated social events, I will play a role in them to a degree. I, I will not dominate. I will fade away when it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's developing the environment, uh, and I think that's the important part. You should not dominate. You should allow people. Society is healthy. Society is built of of, of mongrels. It, it, you need that mix. I think there's there's a, a lot of um, commentary at the moment about diversity and, and the, the problem in boardrooms. And I come from an industry that's a traditional industry and has all of those problems. Okay. But, but equally, I hate the the, the forced balance. I, I strive for balance, but I strive for balance through a meritocracy. You, okay. you, you should be able to look through any label and look at the person and can this person develop to the role that the, the capacity requires. And if that is the case, then the support should be put in place. Black, white, green, blue, male, heterosexual, bisexual, it doesn't matter. It really should have no influence whatsoever. Can this person do the job? Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, the sort of political correctness and whatever starts to drive sometimes bad actions that you feel compelled to do things because there is 
notionally a right way now or a different way of doing things. And I don't feel that's necessarily wholesome. I think if you are ambivalent to all of the other factors, you should be able to lead on the basis of if someone is capable and fit for the job, they should get the job. Mm -hmm. It should be paid the rate for the job and it should be no reflection of any origin or any element of, of their being. Okay. And, and and in terms of your leadership style and where your perception comes from, are, are they are those views shaped by people that you've had you know exposure to in the past previous leaders? Yeah, I, I, I had a, a couple of directors in, in in my formative years, and um, they helped me tremendously on that journey. Um, one of them in, in the sort of transition from hands-on technical to more managerial. I used to wear a lab coat working in, in in the laboratories and it would be stained and burnt with chemicals and whatever. And, and one day my, my technical director, research director at the time, wheeled me into his office and said, look, Dave, you're doing a, a great job, but you are, um, you are in a management role. I suggest from Monday it's a shirt and tie. Yeah. It was... <laughs> It was a, a commentary of its time, uh-huh. but, it, but it was also a, a, a milestone and a marker in my mind to, there, there is a perception to this as well. And I know society and, uh, has evolved since then, mm-hmm. but of its time, what it said was, you need to be able to work with and above the people that you're mixing with. And you need to be able to draw those lines because sometimes there needs to be discipline. Sometimes there needs to be that decision. And leadership for me is all about decision making. It's one thing I should really emphasize. I think that the poor leader hesitates and makes no decisions. I always say to people, I think I've had a good day if I've made 100 decisions and 51 of them or more are right. (laughs) I hope it's a better ratio than that. But sometimes, but you have to make the decisions and... and, And one thing about decision-making, it's entirely emotional. All decision is made by how you've convinced someone. You can stack all the evidence and all the data. We're learning that uh, through our our political aspirations at the moment. We went through a a whole range of, of, of methodologies. Historically, lobbying was belligerent. You went and banged on government store and you told them the mess what they were doing would create, would destroy jobs, destroy economy and infrastructure and whatever else. And then over the past sort of 10 years or so, that's migrated to something that's been called evidence-based lobbying. So you get all your technical people together and you weigh in the evidence and you prove to civil servants that within their models, they can take it to decision makers and ministers and explain to them why they should make a particular decision. But we've moved on from there because even evidence-based is easy to marginalize and talk around. We live in a in a fast-moving society where everything is governed by social media and the, the rapidity of, of response. So you have to get on top of that emotional element and you have to be able to spin messages. Governments are, are, are masters of it. They employ so much in, in terms of PR and spin doctors to sell things that are uncomfortable to the public, but we still buy because they're packaged appropriately. So equally now in that journey, we have to respond in kind you know we have to shape our arguments not just as the the sort of evidence um data heavy uh, weighed in arguments but much more 
pulling at the heartstrings. I'm deeply embroiled in this in, in the energy crisis at the moment because fundamentally the government are trying to respond to their feeling, their barometer of public understanding. Public understanding is outraged by what's happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We've got to do everything to punish Russia. To punish Russia, we put sanctions in place that prevents money flow to the war machine that is Russia. Fine. But the problem is, unless you fully analyse that and work out by simply putting certain sanctions in place and cutting off the ability to get raw materials like gas from Russia, you spite your own economy. And you've got to find the balance because fundamentally... The gas molecules that we buy are still extracted in Russia, still find the way through that pipeline into Western Europe and still go from Western Europe into the interconnector, into the UK. Just because some other company have got the badge of it and maybe making more on the margins, the molecules still come from from Russia. Mm -hmm. And when Putin says we pay for them in rubles, it reinflates his economy and puts value back into the Russian currency. So appeasing the public desire is not necessarily the best way of solving all of the problems. So you've got to get to the emotional arguments. It's really important that we finesse our arguments in such a way that they hit the target. Okay. And in terms of that argument, is that, I mean, in terms of that oratory that comes with, with your leadership role, is that something that it's not something maybe that would come natural to somebody who was based in a laboratory, for example. Absolutely those, not. Where do those skills come from? Is <laughs> it, that on the job? Is that? It, it, it is. Um, I, I, it, it's a fascinating question. and something I struggled with because on the whole, we are a technical organisation and I employ ostensibly postgraduates, PhDs, well-qualified and capable people. And I come from the same background. I, I, I was trained in the same way. And I think one of the, the stark things that I recognised quite early was that in the UK particularly, as we train and develop people, particularly technical people, we look at the, the disciplines and we decide quite early that subjects like physics and engineering are quite hard to grapple with. And therefore... There is no latitude in someone's education studying those sorts of subjects to become the rounded individual. Okay. There's almost a degree of um, inflicted autism, to to, to use a crude term. We we want people to forget society. We don't want them to respond to the social norm. We want them to rawly learn the disciplines of science and engineering so they're good at it. But that deprives people in that environment of the social skills even the the financial skills you're equipped with heavy technical skills and lots of capability does that equip you to lead does it equip you to manage a business to communicate with people effectively probably not and when i look across the, the people we employ there are a lot of those traits i was fortunate i think in the in my transition from sort of technical lead, I had a lot of people around me who were much more adept in the social environment, and I went on that journey with them. And I didn't find that natural. I didn't find going into a room full of of, of very capable people, intellectually able people, and just picking my way into that audience. I had to learn that craft had to learn how to go into a meeting and sidle up to someone and make my presence known and, and start a conversation. It's not natural. I, I am not innately of, of that ilk. Okay. And I think so many technical people are not. And the education process doesn't lend itself to that. If 
in, in comparison, you look at, say, the, the French system, the baccalaureate system, which is all based around philosophy, which has a healthy dose of technology and science, but also has that philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it brings that balance into play. And I think all human beings need to find that balance. Mm-hmm. There's a phrase um, that, that someone once said to me, which, which I continue to, to re-quote, you strive to be comfortable in your own skin. And I think when you can get to be that, you can lower your inhibitions. It enabled me to go into governmental circles armed as a technically capable person and ask the idiot question without feeling an idiot. Because I knew we could then converse from that point. If it came back as a technical answer, we could converse in technical terms. If it came back without knowledge, I could fulfill the, the the requirement of getting my message over with the technical content of educating the recipient. Okay. It helped me develop a, a way of communicating across the spectrum. But I think I was fortunate in the people that helped me on that journey. And this is why at a personal level, I am very keen to do the same thing with burgeoning leaders in our own organisation. It's so critical that you get the opportunity and that there are many, many latent leaders out there in society that never get the opportunity. So I still employ this consultancy to come in and work with all tiers of our organisation and try and help us spot that latent potential and tease it out of people, even when they don't want necessarily to step forward, just to give them the opportunity, not in any way forcing them, but opening their eyes to what could be. And I think that is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's fantastic that you're doing that. And and so with regards to those latent leaders or someone that was looking to follow in your footsteps, is there a piece of advice that you would share with them that would have been invaluable to you previously or that's, you know, that's helped you in the past? I think it, it, it is listen. It, it's listen, understand, try and build an empathy with people that you communicate with understand someone else's perspective. I think very often in leadership, you get carried away with being task-focused, what you have to do. Uh And sometimes that can really blink you towards taking people on the journey who will help you do that more successfully. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good advice. And and in terms of leaders past or present, famous or otherwise, that you particularly admire, does anyone stand out to you, Dave? Well, there's a couple of people. In my past, I I referred to a director there, a a guy called Dr Bill Cook. He was a uh, an ex-ICI guy who came into the last industry when at the point of our merger with the with the Trade Federation back in 1988. Um, we didn't instantly hit it off. It uh, came from a very different environment. Mm-hmm. And the guy, by his own admission in later years, had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, he came from a, a, a background where most of his uh, contemporaries were Oxbridge graduates and he was out of Edinburgh. Very, very bright guy, good PhD, mm-hmm. uh, but al- always felt slightly out of the in crowd. Okay. And when he came into our business, he had a, a, a point to prove. And um, it took a little bit of time for him to settle in externally facing, but even more internally, he got a lot of poor rhetoric from the, the lower ranks that he, he was sort of lording it over people. It wasn't so. He, he was finding a way of working, and, and he and I over years found a really good way of working together. And I, he said to me in, in later years that he sort of recognised that latent potential in me that I'd not. 
<laughs> I wanted to give the opportunity. And the first thing he did, having recognised that, was give me a department to run and the, the challenge of doing that. And he set some certain challenges within that that helped me focus on, I can't just sort of drift along doing what excites me. I have a responsibility for others now and I have to organise a little bit better. Yeah. And that took me on a, a slightly different path. And he retired and eventually I took over his role and I kept in touch with him. He's not of great health these days, but he, he's still around in his, in his uh, mid-80s. Uh, and he, he was an inspiration to, to, to me. Yeah. And I think the other person that I, I certainly won't be on my own reflecting is um, Vladimir uh, Zelensky. I mean, I think he's doing an absolutely incredible job in 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 the adverse environment that he's having to operate, where a mighty nation is trying to destroy not just his nation, but him. He is showing leadership in spades. I think he's a, he's a phenomenal act. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed on that one. Definitely. And, and in terms of the leadership, well, any content that you consume that's shaping your leadership style and shaping your thinking at the minute, is there a book that you'd recommend or a podcast or audio book? What are you consuming at the minute? Or well, I, I, I'm a strange individual. My wife's an avid reader and she'll read anything from labels on, on jars. She's permanently absorbing things. I tend to be very selective. I, I can't be comfortable sitting down reading a, a book for pleasure. I, I try to absorb facts and knowledge, and I like to sort of build an internal debate. So I troll the internet extensively. I read technical text. And one thing, one of uh, another hero of, of mine, which I, I should probably mention, is um, Joseph Schumpeter. The, the economist from um, Czech Republic, Austro, Czechoslovakia, back in the, the 30s and 40s, who finished up as a Harvard professor on, on economics. But he introduced the, the concept of, um, of creative destruction or alternatively titled disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a strange uh, and difficult uh, issue to get your mind around because it, it sounds like it... it it's, it's not the right thing for society, but when you boil it down and you understand what's behind it, it, it is actually very real and very challenging. What it says, uh, and I think there's, there's a few examples, if you look at them on the likes of YouTube, they, they have little video depictions of, of, of what these things mean. I think one of them is quite telling. It shows a, a town in, uh, in America in the late 18. 90s or whatever and it's how this the commerce of this town is set up and it shows the the blacksmith who will shoe the horses it shows mm -hmm. the little saloon bar that will give refreshments it shows the uh, the saddler who makes the leather and everything's dictated around the cart right and whatever everything's dictated around the flow of horses carts and the business that that brings and then one day uh, I can't remember the name of the lady in it, let's say Anne. Anne turns up and, and brings the, the first automobile to town. Mm -hmm. And cogs start to tick. But the cogs say that the automobile is expensive. No one can really afford it. We've already got an economy that's based on other things. So how do we shift the equilibrium? Mm -hmm. It needs a disruptor. It needs something that says, that's the past, this is the future. Mm -hmm. But it can't do it in a punitive way. So how does it address disrupting destroying to some degree the previous in infrastructure by replacing it with a more modern and capable infrastructure. Mm -hmm. 
And so it, what, what it looks at is, well, by the, the promotion of cars, more of them come on board, more businesses around it to service those cars, less blacksmiths, less saddle makers. Uh, and, and commerce is built around reducing the price of the, the previously expensive entity to build an infrastructure that supports the future. Mm-hmm. And Schumpeter was an economist that sort of invented that model for society to evolve. Yeah. So yeah. in terms of a, a book, I would recommend anyone that wants to get their head around that. There's a, an ancient test text by Schumpeter. I think it's called um, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And it basically debates the, the different philosophies of economics and how countries are built. And it's, it can be a heavy-duty read, admittedly, but you can pick into it and you can sort of absorb. And it, that's the sort of reader I am, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, it's, I don't think it's unfortunate at all. But I do think that's it's it's the zeitgeist at the minute, isn't it, with the disruptive innovation? I think Amazon is doing it. People are talking about the robots are going to take our jobs. It's never going to happen because industry evolves. And I think there'll be... I mean, the perfect example is the ATMs previously. They thought the banks were all going to close down and there'd be no jobs in banks because we invented ATMs. But actually, there's more people in banking because of the customer service element and it freed people up to have... If you grow business, it's the argument I always have with the exchequer. Stop taxing big businesses on Mm -hmm. carbon and whatever out of business because fundamentally, the exchequer and the economy thrive on the idea of businesses thriving. The healthier a business, the more tax it pays. Mm-hmm, the poorer a business, the more likely it is to go out of business and pay no tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same principle. Absolutely. Well, tell him I concur next time you speak to him. <laughs> and and so what's on the cards for the next six, nine, 12 months? What, what are you excited about for this year or British cars? Um, we try not to get too excited. I, I think uh-huh. the excitement is based in the journey that, that we're on. Okay. Uh, and one thing that is important is consistency of delivery. What you don't want to be is something one day and something drastically different the next. Mm-hmm. I think what you've got to understand about leadership is that people look to it. That In society, there are leaders and followers, and a lot of people want to be followers. They want to go to work, do a job, have someone else take the decisions, drive the business, and just get paid for what they do and be happy in their roles. We have to respect that. So that leadership comes at a price. It it means that you can't just chop and change at will. You've got to take those people who are less confident on that journey with you. So our journey in the next 12 months is understanding better the things that we're getting wrong, continuing to improve all the things that we've put in place. Mm -hmm. We're doing it in a very adverse environment. We're coming out of COVID and learning a new way of work. Mm -hmm. We are, as I said, a diverse organisation in that we have those a laboratory based, find it really difficult to work from home. If you operate an electron microscope, you're not going to put it in yeah. the garage. You know, you've got to come into work. So our technical people do come into work. Our federation staff and our administrative staff strike a balance where a lot of it is done online. Uh, it's more environmentally friendly. It's more productive in that we don't all have to travel all over. And we're having a meeting with externals, which saves a, a lot of time and an environmental impact. So we are just honing that skill set of working in a in a new world order. We've done incredibly well across the um, across the, the the pandemic. We've ba- we've lost no staff. Um, we we barely touched the idea of the the, the furlough schemes. 
Uh, our productivity didn't change. We hit budget throughout. We had people really upbeat working from home. We had online events. We, we built a, a social environment around it. And we continue to strive to engage people in the business because we are a people business. And, and it's important that we continue to recognize that. So basically, it's more of the same. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Well, watch this space, I guess. And Absolutely. And so in terms of your your next 12 months, the priorities that you have around leadership, that's around building your team or developing your team, did you say? It is, yes. Um, we, we have already well-defined leaders in certain roles, mm-hmm. but uh, despite the fact that we have very little attrition, we're not the best paid business in, in the entire world. And uh, we do attract very capable people who by definition in today's world, tend to develop their CVs by moving around. My own son, he's in, in the world of, um, I call it IT. It, it isn't, he can shoot me for saying it. He's a, he's a, a developer, okay. uh, software engineer or something. But every two years, unless you move on, your CV's damaged. Okay. Basically, he, he flits around and it's nothing to do with the job that he's in. It's just part of what they do. I think a lot of the people we bring in here or are ably qualified do feel the need. But we do try and pr- provide an environment where they really enjoy their term here. Mm-hmm. And many of them come back. That's many great. of them sort of go away because they, they feel they're forced to and they come back. So it's creating that environment where people do actually want to work, like working here, get satisfaction from it. And when they've, and and I think it's necessary that you get out there in the world. I wouldn't want this. It's my sole job. I I came here from university. I'm still here. I don't recommend that for anyone. As much as I've enjoyed the journey, I want people to enjoy life better than I've done. And I I think my my journey for the next 12 months is making sure that we identify the capability to fulfil some of those roles that have been vacated, to identify the best we can within our own business, those capable to come through and and grasp that opportunity. Don't like farming that out if we've got latent talent within the business. That makes perfect sense. David, thank you for joining us. It's been really great listening to your story and and, and sharing your leadership insights. I appreciate your time. Thank you for No problem. Absolute pleasure.